All right, we're live. Representative LeVar Christensen, thank you for having us. Good to be with you. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you very much. Now, your name precedes you, so I think most of the people listening probably are pretty familiar with who you are. Um, but for anybody that doesn't, would you mind giving yourself a brief introduction? Well, I currently serve in the Utah House of Representatives. Just very grateful to serve the people of Utah. And my background is is that my uh, my family roots are deep in Utah. I like to tell people you don't get a name like Lavar without serious Utah roots. <laughs> That's for so, sure. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think I think so. And my uh, my great great grandfather Nathaniel Henry Felt. My grandma used to always tell me about him. She loved her grandpa dearly, but. He was one of the early settlers here in Utah and, and uh, member of the very first Territorial House of Representatives, what we would call the Salt Lake City Council today that established the early water systems and et cetera. So public service has always been a deep part of my life. My mom and dad were Provo High School sweethearts and the Navy and the war took them to Southern California. So we were born and raised there and dad became the mayor of our town and and I grew up uh, as a boy, just steeped in public service, uh, etched in stone over the old city hall where he served. I, I vividly recall it. It has a quote from an ancient Roman poet, Virgil, that says, the noblest motive is the public good. So when I was about 10, I blurted out at the dinner table one night. I said, Mom, Dad, when I get big, I'm going to be a lawyer. And my dad beamed, and like most veterans, he wasn't able to go to college as glad to be alive and to come home and marry your sweetheart and raise a family. That's America at its best. But he said, why, son? I said, because Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln, I'd already, as a as a young boy, just been smitten by the undeniable spirit, what Thomas Edison would classically call the self-evident truths of the foundation of our blessed land of America. So I became an attorney and my sweet wife, Sue, who was also from nearby town of Ontario, California. Her mom and dad were Carbon High School sweethearts, so we have deep Utah roots. So became an attorney, and then uh, we migrated back to Utah. And the opportunity to serve after serving many years in other capacities, but I was elected to the Utah House of Representatives, and, and that's been a great, great joy and a great privilege. You were definitely bred for politics. <laughs> and, you know, I always cringe when I hear that word politics a little bit because I, I believe so strongly in the difference between pure public service and politics. So I understand, but um, it's really about public service. And there's a big difference between the two. So I would like to think that, um, yes, yes, I've been steeped in, in public service and I can attest to the to what a privilege it is and what an honor, but also uh, what a joy it is just to help r people, real life, real people, everyday experiences. Yeah, and to that point, what exactly do you think is the difference between politics and public service? You know, somebody told me once a long time ago, I thought this was pretty significant. They said there may be three kinds of elected officials, politicians, politicians, and statesmen and stateswomen. <laughs> and uh, I've thought a lot about that. The The politicians... And rather than have true convictions and principled motivations for what they do, if they they just poll and take polls and then tell people what they want to hear, and if it's just trying to get elected for their own personal reasons, as opposed to um, really wanting to represent the people in the way in which our Constitution truly envisioned and intends, the politicians... Um, 
Sometimes they can think it's a chess game or something, just a lot of behind-the-scenes maneuverings that the people never see. Statesmen and stateswomen doing the right things for the right reasons. I, I formed a, a foundation years ago called Citizens for Principled Government, and that's what I strive for, principled government, principled debate, principled decisions, principled outcomes. So I've chosen to be a, a Republican, Ronald Reagan, great man, he said that we need leaders, not labels. And so sometimes, even though conservative is absolutely true, sometimes the labels can be can get in the way of deep discussion and uh, hard work and diligence and principled outcomes. You've spoken a lot about your father, and even when we were offline, just sort of uh, mingling a little bit, you mentioned he was a great influencer in your life. So I'm wondering, what do you think is the greatest lesson you've learned from him? I think the one I mentioned, the growing up, just the selflessness, the genuineness, the sincerity of pure public service. Love the people, serve the people, help the people. Just to know that every everyone, um, I guess, you know, if you think back to the lesson at Christmas time, that joyous season, but when when Charles Dickens taught that profound lesson about Ebenezer Scrooge and here he had worked side by side pretty selfishly with a man named Bob Cratchit, and it wasn't until that one momentous night when finally through miraculous means he looked through the window and he saw that his employer employee had a little boy named Tiny Tim. And not until he went home with him and saw him in his home environment with his family did he ever really know the man and what a difference it made. Even as we served side by side up in the Capitol, such a fast-paced, hectic environment but unless you really go home with someone and see them um, we don't really know them well as we wished we did so it, again when people come forward the constituents that you serve and now I look back at uh, session after session and I look at the legislation that I've been able to sponsor and pass every one of it is rooted in a, an individual a family a group of people citizens who are being impacted in a way that they need help, and they come to their elected representative, and they say, can you help me? I said, absolutely. It's been said when a friend asks, there is no tomorrow. You run, and you help them, and you do whatever it takes. Um, but we're principled. We, you, you can't, uh, you don't agree with everyone all the time on everything, but always, always, we move forward with the greatest compassion and genuine respect for all people, all individuals. So standing strong and united for the good of Utah, being a light on a hill, that's a that's a wonderful thing about Utah. It's a wonderful thing about America. I, I agree 100%. You know, it's funny that you say that because one of my favorite quotes is from an author named Brene Brown, and she said, it's it's hard to hate somebody up close, Right. Um, in this strange world that we live in, we're very detached, but also attached to political figures. I mean, we can follow President Trump's tweets, we can follow President Obama, or you know, President Obama's vacations now. So we're we're connected to people, but we're extremely far away, and we're able to connect with them. We can leave hateful comments, or we can leave encouraging comments. But when you get to meet someone up close, it's really hard not to like them, unless they're genuinely just a bad person. Um, and as a politician, you know, you're, you're inevitably going to get public haters, servant. public service, excuse me, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> as a public servant, right. As a statesman, you're inevitably going to have detractors. 
I mean, you, you automatically have the other party, right? <laughs> um, but, I mean, when we meet, you're just so meek and humble and kind and humorous. You're a very good man. I'm just wondering, what are some of the most common misconceptions you might hear said about you? Maybe just some of the things you just mentioned that, that uh, maybe you're perceived as being... Um, very religious or or something and that maybe that somehow people think that you're not supposed to uh, ever discuss religion and politics and here you are serving in the midst of what's viewed as a political world. I'm very grateful for those founding moments, but with all of our discussion and our dialogue and our combined efforts in defense and protection of rights and liberties, you have to step back and say, what are rights and where do they come from? And Thomas Jefferson said it so well, and we declared it in great unity as a people when we said we hold these truths to be self-evident. What does it mean to be self-evident? It was just universally accepted. It was beyond the need for debate. He said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all mankind are created equal, endowed by who? By their creator with certain unalienable rights. So there is a creator, and that's where rights come from. John F. Kennedy got it right in 1960 in his inaugural address when he said the rights of mankind are not generous gifts that come from the state, they come from the hand of God. And so being a united people that acknowledge our creator, again in our founding declaration where the, the founders on behalf of the people in great unison, over 3 million people in 1776, 3.3 million people in Utah today to think that Utah represents the entire 13 colonies of 1776 wow. is a pretty inspiring thought in and of itself. But, but to think about that, that, that founding declaration acknowledges the, the laws of nature and nature's God and the supreme judge of the world and expresses our firm reliance on divine providence. And so it was then and so it is today. And so it must always be. But that brings out the best in all of us. Compassionate conservatism. Um, like you said so wonderfully a moment ago, when you see people up close, there's a church hymn with a line that says, there is a sorrow in the heart that the eye cannot see. So you ask me, you know, maybe what are some of the misperceptions I work hard. Our, I know our speaker was very kind. He, um, he mentioned once, he said, in the House of Representatives, LeVar sets a, sets a high standard. He said, no one works harder or cares more. That's a high compliment. But in, in working hard for the good of the people, I'm grateful for my attorney legal background, that I can understand the law, read all of the bills, help amend them, know what they say, vote in, in a way that is based on informed consent. One thing that's coming up more and more is that with all of our pushback on government, just like politics can somehow blur the lines between what is public service and uh, and what maybe is has drifted into something that isn't quite as um, principled as it, as it should be or as it once was. But government, we the people, we the people. And there are times when we the people can voluntarily subordinate our unlimited individual liberty and we can come together and we can unite and we can by choice choose to do things for others in a very compassionate way. 
That doesn't mean runaway government with heavy taxation and mandates and oppression and things that destroy our, our quality of life and, and deny us of our lawful pursuit of happiness. But there are many things that we choose to do through our elected representatives that are rooted in genuine compassion, and it's a voluntary act by the people trying to do all we can together in unison for the good of all. You hinted to it a little bit in what you just said, but you've had a, you've had a very eclectic career. I mean, you started as a lawyer, you've been a business owner, and now you're a statesman, a civil servant, but you're also a father and a husband. You've, you've held ecclesiastical callings. You've worn a lot of hats at one time. How have, you been, how have you managed to sort of balance all that and still give yourself enough time to do your due diligence in each, in each category? Like every man, an amazing wife and family, I wish I could say I perfectly, perfectly balanced it. I just do the best I can day after day after day. But uh, trying to say and see every day where you needed most, what's the, what's the most important thing to do. Um, and so I, I just try as best I can to do all those things. But I've been fortunate, I guess, in my personal life, as I mentioned, I, I'm so thankful for the legal education, the career itself, my livelihood. I, I do so much of what we call pro bono work. So many people that can't afford, they need an attorney, but they can't afford an attorney. And that's the bulk probably of most of my legal practice is just trying to help people in so many situations. People will say, what kind of a lawyer are you? And so I'd like to say a really good one. <laughs> but uh, as far as where the fields go, they go wherever people's needs take me. But my family was very successful in home construction and, and property development. And my kind of like that Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, where he always had dreams and visions of going somewhere else. But the family needed him, and he stayed, and he helped with their financial institution. You saw how closely he was involved with the people of his community. In many ways, that's probably my life story, too. Um, I left a very large prestigious firm coming out of law school and was fortunate to receive national awards, but my family needed me and they asked if I'd please come and help them, please join them. And, and so I did. I said, I'll stay as long as you need me. I have other hopes and dreams and plans, but uh, for the next 10 years, I, I devoted myself to helping them. And then my father passed away some 30 years ago. And, and after that, I just continued on my own to... Uh, to do that, to be involved as a business owner and very, very keenly aware of our property rights and but all the laws and things that, that affect it. But the success of that has enabled me to then do so much good and help so many other people in, in the legal capacity. And so back to your original point of, you know, how do you, how do you balance it all? And you just, one moment at a time, just try, but the joy and the blessings. It's been said a person all wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. And the, the great joy has come from just knowing, coming to know so many people and helping so many people. I think back in my public service in the House of Representatives, and I think today, I think of all the people that have been impacted by the legislation that I've been asked to, to pursue and to sponsor and to develop and to successfully pass. And then I see all the good comes from it and I look back and I think think of all the people that I would have never known 
I hadn't served in these capacities. And then when I look forward to another term of service, I I think of what's up ahead and new people that I can that I can continue to help. So. Many people would certainly think of you when they think of the word successful. But you personally, when I say successful, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Well, it depends on what area of life. Um, David O. McKay so famously said that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. So our homes and our families are most important of all. But but people, they struggle. Not everything goes perfectly well for them in their in their homes, their families, their marriages. And uh, and so we're sensitive to all of that. But to the extent that we're talking about public service and the state, our, our state and our nation, um, Ronald Reagan comes to mind in, in our time period. I think of the Reagan Revolution that led to our strong Republican majority here in Utah. And here we are now, the best managed state, the fastest growing state, one of the best places to raise a family, to start a business. Our strong values here in Utah, 180 languages spoken. Now we're talking about the Silicon Slopes. I've been honored and grateful to represent our state in um, in international relations, and, and I know how our state is viewed in the eyes of leaders everywhere, and for good reason, and for good reason. But, but Reagan himself, when he really, in the last several decades, really came to us and, and was the great communicator. And at the end of his tenure as president, when he gave his final farewell speech, he said, I've been called the great commuter, the great communicator. I'd like to think that I just communicated great ideas, true principles. And, I, and he certainly did. He certainly did. And he did it with great wit and, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and great wit and wisdom. I, I have compiled all these quotations from Reagan that I like to share with my constituents and also from Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln said it's a mighty thin pancake that doesn't have two sides to it. <laughs> and so I'm, we're genuinely open to every point of view and, and, and bringing people together. But um, Reagan, and, and I think I mentioned earlier that he asked my father to run for state office. And as a teenager, I was fortunate to have some great moments with, with Ronald Reagan and my father. So that, uh, that legacy has stayed with me. What was he like in person? I mean, not many people listening had the opportunity to meet President Reagan, but do you have an experience or a memory that you'd like to share from that? When I mentioned earlier about the difference between public service and politics, um, you know, the great communicator and the ideas, I mean, he was witty and it was genuine. And nowadays, I think sometimes if you like a speech, you should elect the speechwriter because you're not really looking into the heart of the individual. To think of the greatness of Abraham Lincoln, to have a man... Um, a godly man. When when today, when we think about our Pledge of Allegiance, a grateful nation came home after World War II when everything was at stake. And uh, with now General Eisenhower as President Eisenhower, Congress added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and adopted in God we trust as our national motto. Where did those words come from? Abraham Lincoln riding a train to Gettysburg, writing his own speech, the ultimate two-and-a-half-minute talk, and on a handwritten envelope, that this nation under God might have a new birth of freedom with government of the people, by the people, for the people. Well, for Reagan himself to um, have written out so many of his own speeches, they were from him. And he, uh, 
He was a man of principle. He, they called him a citizen politician. Just rose up and, and communicated these these great ideas. But low taxes, limited government, peace through strength, all the things that he, he gave us, tear down this wall. I've been to Checkpoint Charlie. I never thought I would in my lifetime, my my dad would take us out to the airport, mom and dad, and they'd look and marvel at an airplane, you know, flying and, and thinking, wow. And had I know that in my lifetime I would actually be present, witness the landing of the space shuttle. You know, that's just the things that a lifetime that we have seen. But I used to dream as a boy, I thought, will I ever be able to go to Williamsburg, Virginia? Will I ever go to Independence Hall? Will I ever go to Lexington and Concord? Will I ever be in Boston? Will I ever see these moments? I remember being in the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg and being very humbled to think that here I am, an elected representative, much like Patrick Henry was when he stood and gave that first famous speech about the Stamp Act resolves, and then later to be at Richmond, Virginia, and St. John's Church, where he stood and said, give me liberty or give me death. And most people don't know who Edward Carrington was, but he was a, a soldier there and the people that were gathered, and he was so moved by what he experienced. He said, I don't ever want to forget what I just felt here this moment. He said, bury me on this spot. And if you look just outside the window there, there's a gravestone of a man named Edward Carrington. So we have... We have so much to be um, to be thankful for. I'm I'm very grateful for the opening. Every day in our sessions, we have an opening prayer and a pledge of allegiance. People of all faiths, but it's to me, it's one of the highlights of uh, every day as a public servant for the people of Utah. Of all those historical Civil War monuments or um, you know original colony establishments that you just mentioned, was there one in particular that really stood out where you felt sort of a, a supernatural, um, you know, those those times when you're, you stand in a place and you can sort of feel generations before you. Did you have an experience like that in any of those locations? Really all of them, but I think Independence Hall there in Philadelphia, that's so unique, the green room, where the Declaration of Independence was first signed and and then later to have the Constitution signed there. That, that's, that's just um, sacred ground, undeniably sacred ground, but... To realize also that it sprinkled up and down the coastline of those 13 colonies at that moment in time with these great, great patriots. And again, through the election process, so thankful that the people of Hanover County selected a young man named Patrick Henry. I don't know who his opponent was, but I'm glad that they selected Patrick Henry and <laughs> sent him to the House of Burgesses and all that he stood for. And... Um, and then, you know, the same thing to, to, to realize when you look at the doors of the Independence Hall and to realize that there in 1787 as they came together in the Constitutional Convention, but when those doors in September finally swung open and a woman asked Benjamin Franklin, what kind of a government have you given us, sir? And he said, a republic, madam, if we can keep it. And here we are, the stewards of that, keeping keeping the republic and John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams and Abigail, who said, posterity, you will never know how much it took for my generation to give you your liberty. I hope you'll take good care of it. And so, um, again, George Washington, at the end of his heroic life, 
Um, I just want to say one thing. I, I love bring, bringing students up to the Capitol. I help sponsor and establish the Utah Commission on Civic and Character Education. These aren't just abstract history lessons for people to think about occasionally. Um, Carl Sandburg said, a nation that forgets its hard beginnings is a nation in decline. And a chilling quote from Karl Marx, of all people, he said, a people severed from their roots are easily moved. You don't ever want to be severed from your roots. And they make us stronger and stronger as time goes on. But this wonderful group, group of young students were with me up at the Capitol, and I was just so thrilled to be with them. I do it all the time, all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do even helped with our commission. We even make it possible for the young people from all over to come up to the Capitol and, and have funding there that they can receive through the schools so that they can make those trips. But I asked the kids one time, I said, uh, how many of you just love math? How many of you love science? And how many of you love history? And they all shot their hands up. But when I asked them what the difference was between history and math or history and science, this one lovely young girl she just wasn't going to wait. She raised her hand and she blurted out in the back of the room. She goes, I know, LeVar, I know. She said, history's all about real life and real people. <laughs> and I said, can I quote you forever? <laughs> because it was so true. And I said, don't ever, ever let any of this come across like it's just a story in a book. I said, think about it. What, what if, what if you were a young girl living in Lexington, Massachusetts in April of 1775, and you're in a little log house that your father chopped down the tree, built it. There's no air conditioning. There's no electricity. You wake up in the middle of the night. Why? Because your father is up. He's got a candle. He's, you hear something. What's he doing? He's grabbing a jacket, a rifle. Where are you going, Dad? I'm going down to the green. Why, Dad? The British are coming. Are you going to be okay? It'll be all right, honey. Don't worry. Don't worry. And these men go down to the green, and Paul Revere and William Dawes, they're all running, th riding through the night. A king who's never been to America thinks he owns this taxation without representation. And uh, they think that if they can secretly capture the militia, look at our Second Amendment rights, right to bear arms, where does, but, but instead, these men, they gather, and they have a natural leader. John Parker says, don't fire unless you're fired upon. Don't fire unless you see the whites of their eyes, but if they mean to have a battle, let it begin here. Real life, real people. Eight dads don't come home. You know, real life, real people. So Washington, at the end of his heroic life and his public service, I mean, never in the history of the world has a military leader voluntarily relinquished his control, his authority, just went home to live as a free man, having helped us establish our freedom our God-given freedom. But at the end of his life, he said, there is no duty more pressing upon a legislature. I think, now listen up, you let, us as legislators. The father of our nation said, what? He said, there is no duty more pressing upon a legislature than to support a plan for teaching the science of government to the, quote, future guardians of the liberties of this country. And so generation after generation, young person after young person, those are the profound things. I, I'm just so deeply passionate about our children's education. I, uh, our children, our families, our values, our future. Those are my constant focus as a state representative. And I know that we can continue to stand together for what is right, and we can do so with the greatest compassion and respect for every individual. And as Ronald Reagan said, there's a bright dawn ahead. 
for America, and I would say there's a bright, bright dawn ahead for our great state, and that together we can make a real difference for the good of Utah. And that's why the, the privilege of public service means so much to me. That Ronald Reagan quote you just read made me think of a, a Benjamin Franklin quote from when they were uh, dr you know, trying to come up with what they're going to be doing next or drafting this new bill that's going to change the world, right? And um, my history teacher, Mr. Ochoa at Alta, I don't know if you've oh, met I know, him. I know him well. In fact, we've been, he, he's just been a hero and a champion as we established the Utah Commission on Civic Character Education. Mr. Ochoa is at the heart of that. You're very fortunate to oh, have had Mr. Ochoa. I often, I often tell my wife and my dad that he was a professor, like a BYU professor quality yes. dude. Like, I had a few professors in high, or teachers in high school that could very easily be, you know, tenured professors at BYU, and he was definitely one of them. But one of the things that he would talk about when we'd we'd go through this lecture is he'd say, Benjamin Franklin was sitting there in that hall, and he was looking forward, and on one of the chairs in front of him there was a sun, and he was trying to figure out in his brain, he said, is this a rising sun or a setting sun? So I, exactly what you just said about Reagan made me think of that quote. Well, it's exactly what I said earlier when you asked me the question about which of all the places I've been where that chair is. It's real. It's still there? It's there. It's real. And when you're there in the green room where they signed the uh, Declaration of Independence and later the Constitution, the famous paintings that's in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington of Washington there at the signing, but that's when when Franklin mentioned that as he'd been looking at that chair where the president, where Washington had been sitting all that all that time. To have a young James Madison there keep, keeping his notes, um, I'm not really into original editions, but lo and behold, when I was at a bookstore in Williamsburg, I gleaned all the books I could, and lo and behold, I found the original edition of James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. Just sitting in a bookstore? It was a bookstore, yeah, and uh, did you buy it? Oh yes, it's in, <laughs> it's in my library. Wow! And and he he, they were so humble. They were so humble that uh, we we really honor the original intent. Uh, Scalia, Justice Scalia, passed away, but talking about you know the justices, and this is a serious concern. Jefferson said he feared that the time might come when the Constitution could become a piece of wax in the hands of unprincipled judges. And when the Federalist Papers were written in Hamilton was that these humble men, they were trying to rally the states to ratify this great work that had just been accomplished. But he said, don't worry about the judicial branch. They're the least dangerous branch of government. But that's not so today. There's too many instances of, of judges legislating from the bench, making law from the bench. And um, and that's that's unfortunate. But Madison, because of their humility, he wasn't going to, uh, and, and really, they weren't supposed to, to keep notes otherwise because it was, if it was today, if the Constitutional Convention was today, and if the nightly news was just, you know, putting in a negative context on everything, the people would be losing confidence. But they, they, they came together in collaboration. It wasn't uh, under the magnifying glass. Uh, a wise man once said, um, be careful not to be pulling up the flowers all the time to see how the roots are doing or to be pulling up the carrots all the time to see how the roots are doing. And so the, if the daily commentary were just tearing it apart, tearing it apart, but he waited 50 years to release those notes so that the Constitution and the people and the, and the United States of America would have time to take root, to take root. 
and so it was delayed when it was finally finally published but but today the, uh, our constitution there were there it was just heroic it was it had not happened before with all the the kingdoms and the dictatorships but since that time over 200 nations have developed written constitutions patterned after ours and the bill of rights that as they went forward to ratify it the ninth and tenth amendments the the, the states were concerned they they didn't want the new government to just be the equivalent of a king they thought they, they so our constitution tells us that that the federal government has limited limited powers unless it's expressly mentioned in the united states constitution the states have retained those powers and if they're not expressly given to the states then they're retained by the people so we the people so all of our rights come from our creator and then we the people in unity in unity come together and we strive to do what's best for the public good back to that wonderful teaching that I received from my father early on the noblest motive is the public good the public good and nobody um, being so extreme that they would claim that there's that their selfish unlimited unchecked exercise of any and all rights if if it's not too much this is a kind of a profound story I my uh, my son, my oldest son Kenny, and my wife Sue and I, with our three children, now six grandchildren, and but my oldest son, I remember he called me one day and he said, "Dad, he goes, um, you're quoted in a book." And I said, "What?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, my friend said that there's this book out there." Now this was more in a religious setting where I had shared an account, apparently that uh, in my church capacity, and somehow it ended up in a a book of quotations, but. It's just a simple story, and it was called the Parable of the Kite. And I, as a boy, I I grew up where um, we were, you know, sports. I would just ride my bike when when I wasn't playing baseball and basketball and all the sports. I'd ride to the library and read all these um, all these amazing stories. But flying kites was a fun childhood family exercise. But this, the Parable of the Kite is is that a um, young boy was out on a beautiful spring day flying a kite with his father. And the, when the kite was string was all the way gone, thousands of feet, just a little speck up in the sky. And the little boy looked over and he could see that his dad was holding the kite string. And he said, Dad, Dad, he said, let go of the kite string. He said, let the kite fly all the way to heaven. And the dad wisely said, oh, no, son. He goes, if I let go of the kite string, it won't fly all the way to heaven. Just the opposite. It'll come crashing down to the ground. And then he taught his son a great lesson. He goes, you know, son, and he goes, Life is like that kite, he says. The uh, sometimes the things that hold you down are really the things that hold you up, and so the tug of the kite string, which is duty and responsibility, cut that, and you're you're in free fall. And so to think that freedom just means anything, unlimited, as if there's no duty, no responsibility, well, that would be a that would be a mistake. So obviously we don't want compulsion and. But that's again why I think our truths are so profound. Back to Washington, and you asked me once about misperceptions, and and if more and more, sadly, it's like if you if you mention the founders or if you go back to our origins, that some would like to think that that's just a history lesson that you just get in a classroom, and that it has no modern relevance, and that's so dangerous. 
to think. So um, just so it's so important that we uh, be true to these things. But it, it's very inspiring me to think that back to Washington again. Um, when he went home after the conclusion of of the war, I mean, here for all those years, he never once was able to go home except once on the way to Yorktown, what would be the final battle. He was able to stop briefly at Mount Vernon, but that's another one of those places that I've been to that I didn't think I ever would. But to think of this, to think that when it came time to go to to the First Continental Congress there that was held in Carpenter's Hall and then originally later, later on at, at Independence Hall, but when Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee, they didn't carpool to uh, to Philadelphia from Virginia. They rode horses, a 10-day ride, 10-day ride. And when they went to to Mount Vernon to pick up George Washington, Martha walked him to the car, walked him to the, out to the horses in the carriage. And she said to the other men, she said, be strong, men. I know George well. <laughs> Isn't that something? <clears throat> and so... Um, anyway, there's just so much. We have so much to be thankful for. But for Washington, there was no precedent. Um, when Madison went back to him and he said, General, you're na- you're, you know, we need you again. Your country needs you again. And so when they went back to Philadelphia to, for the Constitution to form the United States of America, this new government, but when he became the president... There was no precedent. There was nothing that told you what to do for him. For him, just to voluntarily, on his own, instinctively come to the swearing-in, the inauguration, and to bring a Bible with him, and to just open it to a verse that meant so much to him, and to put his hand on it. And then, when he was asked to take the oath, and of pure fidelity to the upholding the Constitution, the oath of office, will you do that? Yes, he says. And then he adds the words, "So help me God." That was the man. That was his heart. That was his conviction. And back to that beautiful young girl who said, I know, I know, real life, real people, that really, really happened. And that's what we that's what we have to be thankful for. That's what we have to look forward to. And we do have that responsibility of our own to um to accept the responsibilities of liberty the duties that go with it, the accountability that goes with it, but to do it all for the good of all mankind. You've talked a lot about responsibility, gratitude, remembering. Going back to the kids that you take out to Capitol Hill, let's say an 18-year-old. Like Mr. Ochoa would, right? Like, exactly, like Mr. Ochoa would, yeah. Um, what would you say to an 18-year-old kid who's just graduating high school about to enter into the world you know it's going to be voting soon coming elections going to be finding maybe going to college or finding a job what would your advice be to that young person dream big there's nothing you can't do dream big read 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 but be a thinker and read the right things that that will make a difference in your life but look up, look up, and uh, those are the. I, I'm really impressed right now in the current election. One of our state delegates 
is an 18-year-old student in the local high school. And he's one of the, he's a star. He's just, he's very humble. He's very well informed. I would have thought he was getting his master's degree in college. And I find out he's 18 in high school. <laughs> and I just thought, wow. Um, I guess there's a country western song long ago that has a line in it that says, my future's so bright, I got to wear shades. <laughs> and I, I wished I could just give out sunglasses to all the young people and say, your future is so bright, so bright. And, um, I just love our young people. And I'm so thankful for the elderly. I mean, it's just all people, the the sick and the afflicted. And there's just so many things that, that have happened, um, like I say, through the courts. And the, I hope with all this passion that I've shared about, about history in America that it doesn't sound overly idealistic or those people that almost think it's irrelevant. It's absolutely not. There's a saying that says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. You have to have a compass. You have to have a map. I was really touched. Um, our family was out at Lake Powell many years ago, and everybody was packed into a boat. We were going fast, trying to get through all the little markers and get to you know, the, the lookout points. And, the, and my, my daughter-in-law, she called out to my, her husband, my oldest son, and she said, Kenny, Kenny, she said, don't go that way. Don't go the other way. And he said, why? And he goes, she goes, that, that direction doesn't go anywhere. And he says, how do you know? And she said, I have a map. I thought that taught me a great lesson that day. I thought, I have a map. And if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So what are our principles? What is our map? And that's what, that's what we are trying to um, ensure and safeguard and, and protect. But but now as it translates into real life and real people, there are so many tangible things that we need to talk to. In a given legislative session, there's as many as a thousand or more bills, about 500 of them passed. That sounds in the abstract like far, far too many. And I've joked and said, I'm going to run a new bill that says you can't pass a new law unless you repeal two old ones. <laughs> and, and we want less, not more. But if we use good judgment with our 3.3 million people, um, there's many tangible things. I mean, I, I can, I can go into the specifics. This session, uh, many, many women came to me and with great emotion, told me that uh, that here we have something. We, they're, they're, they have mammography, and that they were so vulnerable that it turns out that half of all women have something called dense tissue. This is so intimate and personal. And I. I said, can only a woman run this bill? And they said, no, no, LeVar, you care, you care, and we need you. Will you do this for us? And so in working together with these wonderful women, Colette Moser and Lisa Mon and Kelly Wolbrook and Kathy Skeen, Marilyn Larson, all of them just coming forward, and I learned that half of all women have something called dense tissue. It's just a, it's a condition that, that makes your mammogram false and misleading that they say it's like finding a snowflake in a snowstorm. And so for years and years and these years, these women would go get an annual mammogram and the healthcare provider would be looking at the mammogram results that the patient themselves are not seeing. And lo and behold, it says you have dense tissue. Well, that makes it makes the mammogram false and misleading because it's not accurate. You can't see that. And they weren't being informed. And so as I studied it further as an attorney and poring over the law books and the 
and current statutes, I find that since 1991, we've had the Mammography Quality Assurance Act, but we've never really updated or fully achieved it or implemented it. And so, lo and behold, the, the women were saying, we need to know, we want to know, we have a right to know, please tell us, just tell us. And so, working together, we passed that legislation. Another family comes forward, Dennis and Celeste Shakini, and they lost their son Tennyson to the opioid crisis. Their adult children, he had, he was a hockey player, he had been injured, he had painkiller medicines, but it became instantly addictive. This is just one of many, 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 but our state was as high as fourth in the nation among deaths related to this. Last year, over 600 people died of opioid addictions, and so it took me over two years, but we were finally able to overcome all of the um, civil liberties and con and constitutional law questions and objections that might have been there, but was able to work with the courts and the medical profession and create what we now refer to as the Essential Treatment and Intervention Act, and for the first time now, a loving, caring relative can petition the court and receive legal standing and authority to get someone the help that they don't know they need, but they do need. And rather than just watch them die like the, like the Shikinis had to do with their son Tennyson, you can... So making a difference, real life, real people, goes on and on and on and on. But um, homeowner foreclosure relief and and um, just all of the things that have come to me from the people themselves, domestic violence protections that women came to me with, and I was able to uh, to address those as well. With regard to the federal government overstepping its bounds and owning 70% of Utah and us not being able to achieve the original intent of our statehood, able to pass legislation that has reserved our full and unconditional constitutional right um, to resist takings and interference with our state sovereignty. That's been very important and been able to strengthen penalties and pass measures that would prevent illegal drug trafficking in our prisons and correctional facilities, a place where you should certainly uh, not be vulnerable to those things. A lot of other ones that examples that are um, that are very important here, but all rooted in the individual requests of, of citizens and constituents. Again, real life, real people, everyday experiences, proper role of government, compassionate conservatism. And that was George W. that said that? Yes, and it was really rooted in a man named Marvin Olasky who's written extensively on it. And uh, it's... Um what I find interesting about a lot of these bills that you're presenting to us is these weren't things that you came up with on your own, you know, and that's what makes me... No, you know, bi no biases of any type, just trying... Yeah, and this is, appealing to the, this is appealing to that statesman thing you are talking about earlier, you know, where rather than being a politician going out and doing your own thing, you're, you truly are a statesman like it was intended, and you're only just doing the will of your constituents. So I think that's very interesting. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to jump in a little more with the op opioid problem, sure. because that is a big problem. I think I was reading the other day that every day 90 Americans overdose on prescription drugs. Worldwide, I think Big Pharma makes about over one tr $1.2 trillion, I think it is, annually in sales. And more than half of that is within the United States. How are we going to stop that? What are you going to do? Well, it's like so many things, too, is that um, 
The medicines are fundamentally good and necessary, but sometimes good things can be misapplied or abused, and then you can have unintended consequences or you can have terrible, terrible outcomes. And so in this case here, what I found was that um, before I was able to write and create the Essential Treatment and Intervention Act, the year before, as I was first introduced to this, the first step that we took was we found that the prescriptions were being over-prescribed more than 30 days at a time. One, and, and this is called, called doctor shopping, where mm. people could just go and go to multiple doctors. One elderly woman is found to have had as many as 1,000 um, opioids. And one pill, one pill has an $80 street value as a heroin equivalent. So people would get addicted first very quickly on whatever they could find through someone's medicine cabinet. If not their own, they found it from somebody else's. But then they would go out on the street and get the cheap version of it, and there's the illegal drug trafficking and all the things that are going on. So it turns out that although we were as high as fourth in the nation, we ever since 2010, we've had the pre, one of the premier electronic registries that tracks the prescriptions. But we found that only 10% of the doctors were actually looking at it before they made a new prescription. So the first bill I passed was um, to work with them and to ask them to, um, the prescribers and the dispensers, to actually use the registry so that they wouldn't inadvertently be contributing to the problem by participating in doctor shopping simply because they weren't checking the registry. So that was a, the first step. The next step was that we found that that um, under this extreme application of yes, liberty, we've talked all about this. But if if it's impossible for anyone to get help, if the minute you turn 18, you're the only one that can ever talk to your doctor, or can that nobody can do anything for you because only you can. Well, that's why we were able to. Uh, to ultimately pass the Essential Treatment Intervention Act and created an emergency procedure where you could go in and if you can demonstrate to the court, and they have a process now where where you can show that um, if a person poses danger to themselves or to another and there's two examination, examiners and they testify, and there's just a process, but people can get the help that they need. So I serve on a high-level task force now and the at the White House level, their Secretary of Health has has come to Utah and we've been leading out in this area. We're making great strides in addressing the opioid crisis. What's really bizarre about the whole thing is since 1999, uh, prescription, so overdoses are up 4%, or four, they're up, they're four times as high as they were in 1999. But like to your point, so are the amount of prescriptions being written by doctors. So it's not necessarily a, a drug dealer thing like on the street corner. I mean, these are getting prescribed legally. Well, and, and I think the medical profession now is stepping up where um, out in New Jersey, the governor thought all he had to do was just stroke of the pen instantly, tell him you can't do this and you can't do that. Um, but here, going through the legislative process and collaboration and working together and and doing it the right way and the, the right thing, that many of the in the medical profession have now taken notice of this crisis 
and they're voluntarily reducing the uh, the frequency and the volume of their prescription by as much as 40 to 45 percent. Instead of going 30 days or longer, they're shortening those up so that they're not building up these excessive amounts. So that's something we appreciate that that is happening. I also passed in their bill this session where I worked over the whole last year on the administrative rules side of how to implement all of these and in working with the Department of um, Substance Use um, Abuse here in um, and Disorders in Utah, we were able to work with the emergency rooms and coordinate with them and also with law enforcement if, if someone violates the court order, how to do all this together. So again, here in Utah, naloxone also is huge. This was never available before, and we included a Good Samaritan element because people would be at some type of a drug party or something, and a person would just collapse from this drug overdose, and no one would call 911 or call the for help because they were afraid that they would the police would come and that they would be charged criminally. And so to make sure that we're saving lives, we included a Good Samaritan element, an exemption from criminal liability, please, please. And then the naloxone, which is an antidote, you can actually give it to them immediately and it will reverse it and save their life. And so that's becoming more and more available now to people. So public awareness is where we are right now. We've put a lot of protective measures in place, but we're just spending so much time and effort trying to educate the public so that if you happen to be right there when it happens or if you have a loved one, you can act you don't want to have the experience that the Shakinis and, and Mark and Kathy Lewis had with their children, with their son, um, Tony, where, where they couldn't do anything. They just couldn't do anything. We've come so far. Now, some might argue that medicinal, medicinal marijuana is effective and less addictive and potentially less harmful to the individuals. What is your stance on that? You know, I, I think it's a great example of... Um, I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but another quote that says, some people's minds are like concrete, all mixed up and permanently set. And um, you, w these topics are so important and they're so sensitive that they warrant and they require research and deep, careful consideration. And sometimes, sadly, the laws that are passed can be very superficial. They can just be decided very quickly, last minute, um, you hear about 2,500-page bills that nobody's ever read, and that happens. And I could give you specific examples of, um, about that. But the term, right now, we're kind of swimming in a world of, of euphemisms, where to sell controversial topics and, and shortchange the discussion, you just give it a convenient name, label, characterization. Medical marijuana sounds so innocent. While I'm participating in this very sensitive medical issue, at the same time, I mentioned earlier all of the charitable legal work I do, I end up going to court for young people who have, you know, been partaking of marijuana and it's illegal and it's recreational, etc. Those are the terminologies. But they are almost unconsciously absorbing the thought that marijuana, marijuana must be just fine because every night on the TV and I'm hearing the adults talk about and it's medical and it's this and it's that and 
well, if Nevada's doing it or Colorado's doing it or California's doing it, it must be okay. And so the, um, and the, we, we've got to recognize the difference between the medical application and then, which is a very small group of people who, who are in extreme pain and who need maybe a broadened range of medical options if properly researched, if properly vetted, if it's supervised and administered, if the medical people have vouched for it and are watching over it. But all of a sudden now, what doesn't, it seems like it's premature and not sufficiently researched as yet. And here in Utah, we're beginning to try to do more studies. But what seems odd is that in this one area, where and when is the federal government the right governmental approach versus states? We, we keep state sovereignty, but how do you have the federal government overseeing the entire drug industry, and then all of a sudden, one state at a time, you're supposed to just go rogue and go into the solo marijuana business all by itself without comparable research and protections? And so. On that one, I'm still reviewing it and studying it and hoping that we can be cautious. Um, we took a first step a few years ago where we were told and assured that there was cannabis oil elements in marijuana that could be properly extracted from the plants and that you could then isolate those and use those for their potential medical applications. But some say that we're, you, you know, give an inch, they take a mile. And so more and more it's expanding. So I, I'm just, I'm a little concerned. I don't want anyone to think for a moment that we're not caring and compassionate. And if it has merit and if it can be properly researched and uh, administered to the same degree that all other medicines are, then, then we could take that step. But right now it seems like that it's possibly premature and overly broad. I think those that are for or against would really appreciate your response to that question because it was clearly well thought out and analyzed. I think what people really have a hard time with is that concrete mindset that you're talking about is when a civil servant is asked a question about a given subject and immediately they kind of stonewall and they say, you know, it'll never happen. It's a terrible thing. I think just listening to you explain that, it's very clear to me and those listening that you're actually thinking these things out and it's not just a, a premature premature rash decision, but you're doing your due diligence and actually diving into each subject. So that's incredible. I really appreciate that because some people politically, especially through elections, they'll just go through and look at yeses or nos and then they'll just label somebody uh, and not know all of the thought and the reasons that that went into it. I was surprised again where, you know, why some people would just superficially go off and say that um, on our women's cancer to say, well, I'm never, never, never going to um, require a medical professional to do this or to do that. And so you say no to anything and everything, and it's a blank check. Well, when you're on notice that all these people are dying and that this could be a solution, why in the world would you just have a blanket, overly simplistic no, 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 no? And, and just to say, you, you have to look at it and do your, do your homework on these things. The same with the opioid crisis, to have someone vote no on that as if there's under no circumstances could you ever, ever help 
an adult who's in a diminished capacity and needs help and doesn't know that they need it. And so if you just have an, um, just kind of a blanket restriction, of course you want to make your principled votes, but when you're looking at the individuals that are involved, real life, real people, that's why you're trying to make principled decisions for principled laws and principled outcomes, but always with the greatest compassion and respect. And that's when the proper role of government, too, is is that the end doesn't justify the means. We're not going down the road of necessity as the mother of invention. But there is a time when through your elected representatives, for good cause, if we have thought it through sufficiently in a principled manner, we the people can voluntarily on our own with our liberty and with our freedom, we can come together and we can choose, choose to help people but if you think that under no circumstances can government ever do this, there's a difference between government as an oppressive hand of mandates that violate freedom and liberty, and we the people who choose voluntarily to act in a very principled and compassionate way. You've spoken a lot about being compassionate, having compassion, voting with compassion. Has that ever led you to vote across party lines? Oh, yes. Um, this year I just sponsored a bill was Senator Luz Escamilla, Democrat state senator, and I had passed a bill earlier. Again, all these women and married couples came to me with um, infertility treatment concerns where they were in good faith buying their health insurance, maternity insurance when they would first get married. Then several years into their marriage, they would find that they were proving to be infertile and physically incapable of having children, so it seemed. Well, as I, they asked me what could be done, and again, free enterprise, you don't, you, you don't just force an insurance company to do this or that, but if they've contracted to pay with the premiums that they're receiving from you, if they've contracted to provide you with a particular benefit, now it's a windfall to them if it turns out that you're physically incapable and there's no way that they'll ever have to do what they contracted to do. So to have that dialogue, as I researched it, I found that lo and behold, in our statutes, there was a $4,000 adoption benefit where already under current law, if a couple was in that situation, they could give up, so to speak, and they could go adopt a child, and $4,000 from the insurance company under their maternity insurance coverage could be and would be applied. Hmm. So that So the thought became... Couldn't that same $4,000 alternatively at their choice maybe be applied to an infertility treatment? You always hear about these twenty dollars to $25,000 very expensive treatments, but a doctor, group of doctors told me that they actually, as I researched it further, that they actually had a um, 90% success rate with about a $4,000, $5,000 payment. Well, this would perfectly fit that. So we we may we but the insurance companies weren't you know willing to do it automatically. So we had made it say that they may that they may apply this existing adoption um, benefit to opt, to um, infertility. But but the insurance companies weren't doing it, so it became ineffective. So the next year I passed one and said, well then okay fine. Then we want you in your sales disclosures and your marketing, when a person buys the policy, tell them up front whether you will or you won't so that they can pick the policy if it matters to them which one would. 
Well, this year with Senator Escamilla, lo and behold, the Public Employees Health Insurance Policy, it's PEHP, that's the insurer for the state employees. There's 22,000 employees. They came forward on their own and said that they would be a three-year pilot program and that they would go ahead now and do it. And so Senator Escamilla and I worked together. So I was the House sponsor. She was the Senate sponsor. And so now thank you, thank you, thank you, PEHP, for being such an exemplary health insurer that would come forward and accept the legislation that we've done and voluntarily say, we'll do that. We'll do that. And we're hoping that this pilot program will cause other insurance companies to step up and do the same. Well, that's what's kind of cool about this whole pilot program thing. I mean, the free market will dictate what's going to happen in the future, right? If if people want to be insured with a company that's going to provide for them in case of that horrible instance, they're going to start leaving the other companies and start going to this one. So I think that's cool. Though it was a co-sponsored bill, you're still holding true to this free market value that you hold so dear. So I think that's interesting. Another another one that's is bipartisan is for several years now I've been a real diligent member of a bipartisan caucus that we call the Clean Air Caucus, made up of bipartisan representatives and senators. And we um, we're very you know, we're in such a beautiful state, but we're uniquely vulnerable to winter inversions, and so the air quality, um, the government with the um, and and Sinclair Oil and others have been very exemplary in this regard, but we've come together. We actually have the cleanest air in 50 years, comparatively for Utah, but again, there are those that just say under no circumstances will I ever. A vote for a bill that requires any that requires this or requires that. Well, we um, my bipartisan efforts again is that I've helped with. We have a pollution settlement with Volkswagen where we re, we're receiving a little over thirty million dollars in in pollution settlement proceeds. So we helped establish a um, a task force and an authority that will make sure that those funds are actually applied in the way that they were intended, not to other unrelated purposes, but that we we've done things to um, increase and relocate the monitoring stations to, to where our growth is, but down in Utah County, for example, diesel emissions testing. There are some who just won't even consider anything, but but the diesel emissions testing in some non-compliance areas, that was a bipartisan measure. So, also trying to increase funding for alternative fuels for our school buses, clean fuel for our for our kids, especially in that regard. So there's an ongoing uh, large bipartisan effort to advance clean air in Utah. Now, I'm going to ask one last question. This is going to be me selfishly asking for myself. Um, my wife and I, we have a baby coming on the way. And I love the, I love the quote that you mentioned earlier from David O. McKay about you know, you can, I mean, to summarize, basically you can have everything, but if your home life isn't in order, you know, you failed in some, in some manner. Um, for me asking for a friend, um, what, what are some, what's some advice you have for someone to succeed within their own home? Unselfishness. Unselfishness is the secret to everything. Um, Winston Churchill so wisely said many years ago, he said, where does a family come from? He says, it comes from a boy falling in love with a girl. And so to, um, for each of you to be uh, unselfish and devoted to one another and then to your children. I was just watching a little mother yesterday, and she was just putting her little infant in the car seat. And I've known this couple, you know, from the time of their marriage and then through their pregnancy. And now that 
And I said, boy, isn't this pure heaven? And she said, oh, yes. He goes, it's, you could just see how devoted she was to this little ch- little child. And my mother passed away last May. And so I, you just, as the years go by, you look back and you realize more and more the days pass slowly, but the years pass quickly. Just ask grandpa and grandma. And one minute you're here just at this point. And next thing you know, it's uh, you're down the road. And it's been said that grandchildren is God's bonus for having kids. I would I would also turn to the to the Bible again, but neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man and the Lord, and that's a sacred triangle. And when that in an ideal world, when you have that sacred triangle in place, that is your greatest insurance and protection. And if you unselfishly devote yourself to one another and together you're also devoted and that went back to our original discussion about where do all of our rights and liberties come from they come from the creator and so um i hope that's i hope that's helpful but just there's so many things just have fun it's been said if you're happy tell your face about it and <laughs> a smile is the universal language it's a curve that can set a lot of things straight and so just be happy think big dream big laugh a lot and you'll uh, you'll have but but you have a you have an eye for beauty and you and your sweet wife you have such a great future ahead of you. Well, thank you. And just for closing, if someone listening to this podcast wasn't going to get anything out of it except for what you're about to say, what's that final message that you'd leave with them? One thing comes to mind. Um, we mentioned earlier the the role that Ronald Reagan is a great communicator and a great example has um, played in in my life, and I think as the years go by, he stands out as a wonderful example of a a great leader in modern times. But I keep on my desk in the House of Representatives a plaque that he himself kept on his governor's desk and his president's desk. And it's a replica of that, but I echo the sentiment. He said there is no limit to... how much can be accomplished and how far a person can go if they don't mind who gets the credit. And it's been said that God didn't arrange the joints of our body in such a way that we can pat ourselves on the back. So I'm, I think, in the legislature, maybe even more proud of and more grateful for the bills that I've been able to help amend and participate and help others. They don't have your name on it. You don't care who gets the credit. You just want to make sure that that the outcomes are for the good of the people and for the good of our state. But I think, you know, looking looking back and looking forward, I would just say, God bless Utah and God bless America and God bless us all. Well, thank you. I don't I don't speak much on these podcasts. I just make sure that all the tech is going well. Uh but and then I think the reason that is is because I just like to listen. And uh, I just want to say I've been truly inspired today for the things that you've said. So, thank you. You're very thank kind. Thank you for being you're, on. You're you're very kind. Yeah. The thanks fu- Lavar. The future's in your hands. <laughs> all right, thanks guys. Thanks Episode so 22 with Lavar Christensen in the books. Okay.